Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus. This is my daily email and podcast for paying subscribers to my substack called The Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. I'm based in Wellington and I focus on what's happening in Aotearoa New Zealand's political economy, taking into account what's happening globally and locally, with a particular focus on climate change, housing affordability and child poverty reduction, all of which I think are connected. And I wanted this morning to give you an update on what's happening with the various geopolitical crises going on around the world at the moment, and also update you on um, some of the political responses, both internationally, in the UK in particular, but also here. So overnight, it was confirmed that Liz Truss would be Britain's new Prime Minister. She succeeds Boris Johnson as the leader of the Conservative Party and was voted in narrowly with a majority of about 140,000 of those Conservative Party members. Remember, this is a country with more than 60 million people, but it's just changed its leadership and we'll have a brand new cabinet uh, because of about uh, 140,000 people uh, voting for her. Now that's an accident, if you like, of history and the voting systems that the Conservative Party has, the first-past-the-post voting system in the UK, and the fact that there's not going to be an election there until 2024. Now Liz Truss was elected because she promised Conservative Party voters, who are largely... Uh, wealthy, older asset owners, that she would cut taxes. In fact, some of her signage, uh, which used her uh, initials LT, were phrased LT for lower taxes. She's proposing lower taxes, uh, potentially £150 billion worth of subsidies, so this is government money paid to people so that they can pay their power bills this winter, uh, as well as uh, reversing an income tax increase, uh, the national insurance income tax increase, on the grounds that she thinks this will grow the British economy fast and therefore uh, avoid any pain from having uh, a much heavier debt load. So at the moment, the UK government has government debt of about 100% of GDP. To give you a sense, New Zealand's is around about 30% of GDP. And this £150 billion or so that she's planning to spend on tax cuts, energy subsidies, uh, will be paid for with borrowing. Her argument, which is a fairly typical supply-siders, tax-cut-driven argument. It's been around for 30 years or so, which says if you cut taxes, income taxes, on the wealthy, they will invest and spend it better than the government and drive economic growth. What we've actually seen through 30 years of these tax cuts across Western democracies is that most of that money has been retained by those who earn the most and have the highest amount of wealth, into increasingly, uh, um, increasingly passive investments, 
essentially lumped into a corner in the room, Scrooge McDuck style, piled up piles of gold in things like uh, pieces of art, pieces of land mostly, and all sorts of other um, stores of wealth which don't actually get reinvested in the real economy and which create savings gluts, which are part of the reasons for the increasingly slower economic growth rates and lower interest rates in recent years, which ironically uh, have accelerated this growth in the uh, valuation of these sorts of assets like government bonds, um, pieces of art. For example, today um, we're expected to uh, have the new uh, BNZ Art Auction in New Zealand uh, auctioned off and a record $20 million is expected to be paid for Colin McCann. Uh, so this is Liz Truss and what she's planning to do. Now financial markets um, reacted to this, they have seen through this and don't think that um, Liz Truss's tax cuts will pay for themselves through higher economic growth. Remember, Britain's economy is currently facing a recession and has inflation of potentially more than 20%. Now, this is in part because of incredibly high electricity and gas prices caused mostly by the recent war in Ukraine. And also overnight, we've got more signs of how this geopolitical action or crisis has played out across Europe. The last couple of days, Sweden, Finland and Switzerland, those governments have bailed out their biggest electricity producers, generators and retailers because the price of electricity has in many cases in wholesale terms quadrupled or quintupled in the last year, in large part because the biggest fossil fuel used to produce electricity in Europe is natural gas, which was supplied by Russia. Russia turned off completely its Nord Stream 1 pipeline for gas, the main pipeline for gas, to Europe uh, earlier this week, and that forced another spike higher in electricity prices, particularly futures prices, on financial markets. Now that's important to note, it's a futures price and there are financial markets which are used by companies to hedge their risks. Now what's happened is that this incredibly volatile uh, series of futures prices has triggered margin calls. Uh, this is where those people who um, have taken out effectively insurance on higher or lower prices into the future are being asked to stump up with collateral because of the volatility and the sharp moves in these prices. According to a Norwegian uh, analytical company, the combined margin call on these electricity contracts is likely to be 1.5 trillion euros. At the same time, Goldman Sachs is forecasting that the cost of household energy bills will rise to a peak of an extra 2 trillion euros early next year. That is about 15% of GDP. So for example, that increase in electricity costs for consumers and for businesses, of course, is the, the equivalent of 15% of GDP. And in New Zealand terms, 
that would be uh, around about 15 billion dollars in extra electricity costs so these three governments have bailed out their electricity markets and their electricity producers uh, at the same time um, we're seeing interventions in electricity markets by the european union and the various governments in which they are applying windfall profit taxes to uh, um, energy producers who have profited from these higher prices in particular fossil fuel companies and um, those generators who have access to cheap power which is now being priced at the marginal price of the very expensive fossil fuels um, that are available in particular gas and coal. So what is in effect a geopolitical event where one man decided to take advantage of the weakness of what he, or what he considered the weakness of Western democracies to try it on and to invade a country some of whom, uh, some of which is occupied by Russian-speaking peoples. By the way, Russia has come up with a new foreign policy doctrine over the last couple of days uh, in which it uh, sees itself as protecting the rights of Russian-speaking peoples all around the world. And that's justified um, Russia's invasions at various points of the Crimea, Georgia, and of course more recently Ukraine which Western democracies ignored up until now, in part because they wanted to uh, globalize their sources of energy and other uh, consumer goods as part of a larger project of globalization, and the belief that uh, democracies would win in the end, that history had ended, we'd all be uh, happy, stable democracies trading with each other and generating more and more wealth and income through uh, um, the process of free trading and free markets. What has in effect happened since 1989 and the end of the Cold War, the first Cold War, is that um, uh, democracies embarked on a project of reducing the size of government, reducing tax rates and effectively claiming a peace dividend in which money was not spent on defense or investment in infrastructure and technology uh, to um, ensure the defense of the nations or the nation. And that money was paid back to um, income earners and wealth owners in the form of lower taxes and higher incomes, which of course have been put away into inert investments. And that has in effect slowed economic growth over the years created savings gluts and widened inequality, therefore creating instabilities in these democracies as the large numbers of people who feel left behind by globalization and by the um, widening inequality protest. Now, in some cases, they've protested by voting for political leaders who've actually worsened the situation by campaigning for tax cuts. And one of the uh, ways in which this is framed is that the politician, often from the centre-right, and a populist will argue that big government is bad, that high taxes are bad, and that we should be aspirational for the nation, i.e. retain your money uh, and uh, everyone can become wealthier together. Of course, that sort of trickle-down economics 
doesn't actually work, but it's certainly appealing in the short term from a political point of view, and it's been used most effectively, obviously, in Britain, but also in the United States, where the mostly um, uh, large numbers of uh, poor rural voters uh, voted against uh, a larger government, and in particular voted for um, a windback of what they see as um, bad changes towards globalization and um, increasing migration. Uh, that, of course, was weaponized by the people behind Trump to lower those taxes further and to reduce government spending and to reduce the government's involvement in the economy, which, of course, was self-defeating in the end, as we've seen with more than a million COVID deaths and the disastrous response of the federal and state governments undermined by 30 years of underinvestment uh, to that COVID response. And all over the United States and the Western world, the effects of 30 years of underinvestment are all coming home to roost in crumbling infrastructure and uh, dysfunction at a societal level which uh, feeds upon itself into yet more uh, undermining and uh, dysfunctional democracies. So, that's the rest of the world. What about here? What's going on here? Well, this morning, Thomas Coughlin, a colleague in the press gallery, reports behind NZ Herald's paywall that the Ministry of Transport and Treasury are now trying to come up with various ways to pay for the mega projects that are planned in the works, in particular the ones with the big tunnels in Let's Get Wellington Moving and the Auckland CBD2 airport so-called light rail project, which is anything but light now. It's a series of really big tunnels and heavy rail out uh, around the most populated areas, not using the original plan of down Dominion Road with actual trams and light rail. And uh, these are expected combined to cost well over $20 billion and take 20 or 30 years to, to do. Now, the problem here for Treasury and the Ministry and everyone, of course, is that Treasury and the machinery of government have limited their responses. They've effectively cordoned off the use of um, various tools to pay for these things. In particular, the government could borrow money to pay for these projects over long periods. And however, that would breach the bipartisan and unstated but very real 30-30 rule which is in place and has been in place for at least 20 to 30 years in government, which is that the government will try wherever it can to keep uh, crown tax revenues to GDP at 30% or lower and keep crown debt to GDP at 30% or lower. That means that the government itself can't simply borrow the money or increase taxes to pay for this infrastructure, which many see as essential to solving our housing affordability and climate change issues in our big cities. So how do you do that when you can't increase taxes and you can't increase debt to pay for it? Well, there's various ways you can do it. Congestion charges, what's called value capture, uplift rates. Uh, you can do it with increasing uh, uh, road charges and fuel levies. In effect, tax increases that are unstated and uh, uh, which are um, uh, the hope is that both parties agree to it. It's in effect a de facto increase in the tax rate. 
or you could use so-called non-crown core debt. Uh, you could use uh, public-private partnership infrastructure bonds, green bonds, infrastructure financing, which essentially parks some of that extra debt off the Crown's balance sheet with the aim of um, uh, not breaching that core Crown debt and core Crown tax revenues rule of 30-30. And also to avoid creating a larger government. Many people within Treasury, the Ministry, across the bureaucracies have a fundamental view that this sort of thing is something the government should not be doing and failed at 30 to 40 years ago and uh, is something that should be avoided at all costs. And they're pretty effective at doing that simply by delaying, denying, deflecting until there's a change of government and we're back to uh, taking the pressure off those um, forces trying to increase the scale of tax beyond 30% and the scale of the debt beyond 30%. Although Labour signed up to that uh, repeatedly in the last um, uh, three elections. So um, what we have here is effectively giant exercises in magical thinking. Obviously Liz Trust's, Liz Trust's magical thinking is that you can have tax cuts, uh, subsidies for power bills, uh, lower debt, lower interest rates and high growth all at once, which is simply not possible. And the same in New Zealand, where you can have low size of government, low taxes, low debt, low interest rates, high house prices, uh, all at the same time and forever. But what you're effectively doing is pushing the very real costs of what you're doing off into the future for someone else to bear, with the aim that you won't be around when the cost has to be borne. Climate change is a classic example of that, where you consume and emit emissions now that will warm the planet in decades to come. Or you might uh, put fertilizer and um, uh, extract milk from land in a way that takes 10 to 20 years for nitrates to filter through into the water table or generates methane and carbon emissions which warm the planet slowly and which aren't accounted for in the prices you pay for your inputs. Effectively, as, they are, as we economists call, the externalities of your activity is not priced or paid for today. Effectively, it is put off into the future for someone else in a vague way. And uh, that's what we've been doing for 30 years. We've been over-consuming, under-investing, uh, uh, effectively consuming our infrastructure and consuming the future today. That's fine, uh, as long as you're not around <laughs> when the bill comes due. But what we're seeing is an unusual combination of events which effectively feel like the bill coming due. Climate change is the obvious one, and in the last couple of years there seems to have been an acceleration in the warming of the planet and of the oceans, which seems to have created an acceleration of these climate events, which are now impacting on the, on the real economy. I'll give you an example just from the last day or two. Uh, Pakistan is in the process of trying to um, bail out its own finances, as well as deal with floods that uh, have um, covered a third of the country. Things are desperate overnight because they're worried that a dam 
the biggest uh, the, uh, the, a lake, the biggest lake in the country, is about to burst its banks and flood yet more of the country. So they're having to widen an existing uh, breach of the dam to avoid more damage from that. Secondly, in Bangalore, which is the global outsourcing capital of the world, data centres and offices are flooded and workers can't get in because of record-setting deluges in the last few days. In California, the world's fifth largest economy, we've, we're seeing at the moment warnings about power cuts and water shortages because of the worst drought in its history. And of course, we've heard in Europe, um, because of the uh, war in Ukraine, in combination with the worst droughts in its history, France, for example, can't generate enough nuclear power because it needs water to cool its reactors, which is adding to the electricity cost pain. So what we're seeing is a combination of political and climate events that are coming together in some pretty ugly feedback loops in which the bill is coming due. And it's affecting the productive capacity, the activity in the world as we know it, uh, with the obvious measures being higher inflation uh, and um, lower output growth, political stress, uh, economic and financial stress, and of course geopolitical stress. Uh, the idea was that post-1989 the peace dividend could be consumed and that democracies would win and be stable and that autocracies wouldn't notice or be able to do much about it. But as we've seen with both Russia and China, Russia in part because it can rely on the failure of the world to convert itself off fossil fuels to renewable fast enough. And China, uh, with its um, uh, abilities to grow fast, at least until now, without a democracy, that these uh, autocracies are in effect taking advantage of the dysfunction and failure of these democracies to invest and to uh, build well-being across their societies. And now that dysfunction and stability is coming home to roost. I'm Bernard Hickey. That is my dawn chorus for Wednesday the 7th of September. Kakite kite anō.